This interview was recorded on May 20th, 2020. Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Larry Garfield. Based in the Chicago area, Larry is Director of Developer Experience for Platform.sh, a platform-as-a-service company that helps teams build powerful modern web apps in the cloud. You can follow him on Twitter at Krell, that's C-R-E-L-L, and check out his website at garfieldtech.com. Larry is the author of the LeanPub book, Thinking Functionally in PHP. In the book, Larry introduces readers to the basics of functional programming, the academic and theoretical computer science behind it, as well as discussing in particular the new capabilities related to functional programming in PHP 7.4. In this interview, we're going to talk about Larry's background and career, professional interests, his book, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience as a self-published author. So thank you, Larry, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Hello, world. Good to be here. (laughs) I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about where you grew up and how you first became interested in computers and technology. Well, first I was born. That's going back quite a ways now. Born and raised in the Chicago area. Um, I actually live now about a five-minute drive from the house I grew up in, so didn't go very far. Um, first got interested in computers, I suppose, uh, around 12, 13, uh, when we got our first PC. So 486, uh, no-name, you know, no-brand computer that didn't work right from day one. So someone had to figure out how to fix it, and that ended up being me. So, you know, kind of the standard story of the kid knows, kid has to figure out the technology because the parents don't. Um, later on, went to uh, DePaul University uh, for college in human-computer interaction, which these days we would call usability or user experience. Uh, the, the names have shifted through, throughout time, but it's the same basic idea of, you know, focusing on the user and making the user's experience with technology better. Um, and then also went to grad school in straight computer science, finished wishing I'd done uh, straight up software engineering. So I went all the way across the spectrum from the soft skills over to hard skills, essentially, although I hate those terms. Uh, we can get into that later. Um, then got a job. Well, I, while in grad school, I uh, worked as an IT journalist uh, covering uh, Palm OS uh, and cell phones, if you remember uh, that old thing. Um, so at, at the time, I worked at uh, InfosyncWorld.com, which in the early 2000s was the world's largest handheld and wireless news website. Uh, basically, there was a period when anything that came out for running Palm OS, I reviewed. Um, and that was kind of fun, but there was no money in it. So I'd also been doing uh, web development on the side uh, as a freelance consultant working mostly for area politicians. I've been heavily involved in politics as well. And uh, then after I finished grad school, I started working with a local agency uh, that did mostly nonprofits, universities, museums, uh, recycling companies, things like that as a PHP developer. And I also got involved in the Drupal project, uh, open source CMS written in PHP. And about a year, year and a half after I started at the agency, we uh, switched and became a Drupal shop. The degree to which that was my doing is, has always been a subject of some debate, and I was happy enough with it that I didn't really bother debating it. And over time, I became one of the lead developers of Drupal itself. Uh, I led the, uh, the big rewrite that was Drupal 8. I was one of the lead architects of that. I've since stopped working with Drupal entirely and separated from that. Uh, and about four years ago, I moved to my current company, uh, Platform.sh, uh, to work in developer relations. Um, 
along the way, I also uh, found that I really like teaching. I really like presenting. I really like conferences, that whole vibe. So I've become uh, one of the, the regulars in the PHP circuit uh, on at PHP conferences and also some other conferences and you know, general language conferences. Uh, I think I've been at a JavaScript conference or two. Um, and you know, I, I, the way I like to describe it, uh, I get to teach, but I don't have to grade papers. So. Yeah, yeah, I've got I've got a lot of questions about a lot of these a lot of these different things. Thanks for touching on so many different points. It's hard to capture a life into two minute in a two minute sort of spontaneous presentation, but I think you did a pretty good job sort of setting the stage there, which is really great. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you about was so you say you got your start in computers by fixing fixing a computer. Um, I've interviewed people who uh, whose introduction to computers spanned many different generations. Um, <laughs> one, one person I interviewed for the podcast once, Jerry Weinberg, he, he was himself the first computer he ever worked with. He was that, that, uh, from that generation. Um, so when you fixed the computer, what resources did you have available to do that? Honestly, at the time, my main... So when I say fix, that also includes learn how to use DOS, which... We had previously right. had a Commodore 64, which is a very different beast. Very good computer, but a different beast. Mm -hmm. And frankly, my number one resource was the manager at the local electronics boutique. I don't remember his name, unfortunately, but he was really nice guy, super helpful. You know, always happy to answer rudimentary basic questions from this little 13-year-old. Uh, and so we bought lots of software there and uh, lots of software books. Um, and it was a, a, a really good symbiotic relationship for a long time. Uh, I also you know, picked up um, you know, a couple of uh, books, as I mentioned, uh, for what at the time was, you know, DOS for Dummies or um, Windows for Dummies or other books along those lines. I actually got into web development. Uh, because I learned how to use Windows, this back in the Windows 3.1 days, my father's a college professor, or was, and uh, he also taught at DePaul. And I was the kid who came in and fixed everyone's computer there. Fix meaning I knew how to reorganize the icons in Windows. All <laughs> things are relative here. And so when the department was told by the university that they had to put together a department website for this new thing that's come out called the web, they just uh, we'll just have Larry do it. And so my dad came home and said, Larry, do you know anything about building web pages? I'm like, no, but give me a bit and I'll learn. And so I picked up a copy of uh, creating cool web pages with HTML 1.2 or something like that. That was, that was the title. And uh, just read it in one sitting and got started. And I'm very happy to say that first site is no longer online. Uh, it's for the best. But... That's how I got started in web development too. Was just the uh, the plucky little kid who everyone trusted to deal with that computer stuff. Thanks very much for sharing that. That's such a great story. Um, I've 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 heard a, a few versions of that before, um, including uh, one where um, there was like a a city administration that had like a server room that, like I'm putting it in quotes, broke was about as specific as they could be about what was wrong, and they got a couple of teenage kids who, like, you know, whose parents worked in the library or something like that <laughs> to, uh, I'm getting it all wrong, uh, but, uh, but it was some, some version of that. And it's, it's really interesting, too, to think about these, um, the different types of skills that are in, required for solving uh, various kinds of problems or learning kinds of things and how those have evolved over time. I mean, I know you, you mentioned that you're interested in, in teaching just in general. 
Um, and in the days when you didn't have the World Wide Web to go to, really, for solutions, there was no Stack Overflow. There were, you know, things like that. Um, I'm not saying it was it was the, the the world that we live in presents us with many challenges, constantly evolving. It's not like it was sort of uh, harder in some objective way in the past, but it was just a different kind of challenge to try and find solutions to things. And often, you know, the book in the bookstore, the one the bookstore had was the resource that you used. And then after that, it was, you know, off to the races. Yeah. And it, I don't think it's necessarily easier or harder. Uh, I mean, back in the 90s, you had fewer resources that you could access when you needed them. But there was also a lot less going on. As I, I could learn to build a website by picking up one book, reading it in one sitting, and you know, cranking out some HTML tags and a text file. These days, doing serious web development, you're writing in four different languages with three different layers of compiler and version control, and that's the barrier. You know, that's the the ground floor, um, and that I I've kind of feel bad for people trying to get into web development these days because you're not you know you're the entry level you need to know html css sql javascript and one of four different background languages at least before you're even useful and then there's the giant tool chain that each of those have which is in some cases terrible and just that the barrier to entry now i think has gone up faster than the available resources to deal with it. So it's. That's a really, that's a really interesting observation. One, one question that actually often comes up on this podcast uh, that I, that I like to ask people because people that I interview who are into, into programming and tech come from so many different directions and end up in so many different places. Uh, One thing I'd like to ask them is if you were starting out now, say you were 18 years old, you just graduated high school. I mean, bracketing the specific circumstances of the now that we're in, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But if you were in a conventional now and you were starting out with the intending to have a career in in tech, would you want to do, would you advise yourself to do a full computer science degree at a university and specifically in the United States um, or not? That's really tricky. There... There are definite advantages to a good computer science program. I think we, as an industry, spend far too much time ignoring the extensive lessons of the past. Uh, And that's a lot of the presentations I give and a lot of the writing I do is based on, you know, this is an industry that wasn't invented 10 years ago. And if you want to be good at it, you need to understand that, you know, a lot of these problems were solved in the 60s and we're still resolving them because no one pays attention to the history and you're not going to get the history if you come in kind of sideways. On the other hand, some of the best developers I know are people who didn't go to school or didn't go to school for programming. They just picked up a text editor and started cranking stuff out and searching online and you know, failing the first few thousand times and stuck with it and learn that way. And honestly, I would take someone with four years experience over someone with a four-year degree. I'll take someone who has both over someone who has either. But between the two, I'd rather someone who has four years real experience developing software than someone with a four-year degree in it. Um, There's no substitute for getting your hands dirty and failing a couple of times. 
one of the things I tell anyone just getting into programming, whether they're in a program, you know, a school program or not, the, your first 100,000 lines of code are going to suck. Doesn't matter how smart you are, doesn't matter what language you're writing in, doesn't matter what your background is, what your you know, various you know, ethnicities or gender or whatever are, your first 100,000 lines are going to suck. That It just takes that long to train your brain to think in a computer-y kind of way. And you just need to get through that 100,000 lines as quickly as possible before you really start to understand what you're doing. It's really, it's really interesting. I'm, I'm, uh, you know, uh, lean pubs, resident non-programmer. Um, <laughs> uh, so I do, I do do some programming and I have to be familiar with all kinds of programming concepts and stuff like that. And I've, you know, been fortunate enough to learn so from so many interesting people reading their books and interviewing them for this podcast, in fact, but I, I, um, have a bit of a background in investment banking. And so that involved making pretty complex financial models in Excel. And I didn't, this is sort of a relevant point. I didn't know until after that I was programming. Um, and so I, there were lots of things I was doing. Like I learned the mod function mm-hmm. and it wasn't until like, like literally last year that I learned that was like, I was, that was a math, something from math that I learned that it wasn't, it was and, and, and I guess what I'm getting at is like the challenges that you're faced with as a programmer, like go solve this problem, go build this thing, require constant engagement with learning new things. Like you said, many different languages, many different frameworks, mm-hmm. stuff like that. And so after a few years, even if you don't, necessarily and this this isn't an answer to this question but that i asked necessarily but even if you don't necessarily have the names of the theories or you have a, a theoretical background you will have faced the challenges of of having to understand the concepts at some point yeah and you know this is jumping ahead a little bit but spreadsheet you know advanced spreadsheet developments is functional programming so congratulations, you're a functional programmer. <laughs> yeah, well, we, we'll be definitely talking about functional programming going forward, yeah. Uh, but sorry sorry to, to sort of hijack the conversation there, but uh, going, going back to you. Um, uh, so yeah, you mentioned you were, you were reviewing Palm OS devices around the turn of the millennium. Uh, that was an exciting time for technology, not that it, it isn't always, but uh, so what was, that, what was that experience like? So were you, were you getting cool devices in the, in the mail all the time? Uh, and then yeah. writing writing reports on them. I mean, so yeah, just to set the context a little bit, there are people who would not have been listening to there are people listening to this podcast who would not have been alive at that time. What was the the Palm device? So the Palm or Palm OS range of products, yeah, uh, yeah, um, was the first actually successful uh, handheld computer. There were a few models before that that you know, like the Apple Newton that went absolutely nowhere. Uh, the Palm Pilot was the first one that was actually commercially successful and, you know, had a, an ecosystem around it and had uh, a very long and complicated and sorted history uh, of the company breaking up into pieces and re- remerging again and licensing and not licensing. And that's a whole other podcast and as a book into itself, actually, that uh, I have read. I didn't write. Um, <laughs> But yeah, there, during its height, um, the Palm OS had uh, devices from Palm, from Handspring, from Handera, from Sony, from a, a couple of other companies, uh, including the first combined PDA and personal digital assistant slash uh, cell phone uh, slash pager. It, it was doing the kind of stuff that we now do with smartphones 15 years ago 
10 years before the iPhone, it was already moving that direction. And so for a time, I, you know, every week I'd have some new Palm device or some new accessory or some cell phone that showed up at my apartment and I would put it through the paces, uh, test it, run some software on it, um, and you know, write a review on that for our website. And I also was re reviewing software uh, as well. So for a while, I ran the news desk uh, for the company. So it was a lot of, here's what's going on in this nascent industry. Uh, I also worked briefly uh, at a company doing Palm OS development, uh, writing code uh, for the Palm that blissfully didn't last long. Uh, that was a terrible company. Nothing wrong with the Palm, just the, the company itself was a terrible place to be. So uh, I'm glad I did not last long there. It's, uh, it's really interesting, the story of these handheld computing devices. So, um, uh, you know, often the concept of e-readers comes up on, on, on this podcast for obvious reasons. And there's this weird thing where, like, they started coming out in the very late 90s and then kind of went away until right around 2007, 2008, when the Kindle came out. Um, that's a very short version of a big of a big story, but the Palm devices that you're talking Palm OS devices that you're talking about, they didn't have keyboards. Typically, I, if I recall correctly, they had there were a one or two that did, but most did not. Okay, yeah, they they had a screen and they had a, a typically you interacted with it with a stylus, right, like a little kind of pen yep. that you that you drew on there. Um, why did that go away for a time instead of just kind of? Uh, evolving into the into the iphone which which seemed to which like as people would often think just sort of came out of nowhere but in fact it was just that there had been a few years of these other type these sort of screens going away so it's not that they went away per se so so on on ebook readers in particular dedicated ebook readers in the late 90s early 2000s were needlessly expensive and when you already had a three, four hundred dollar PDA with just as good a screen, why have a separate ebook reader? I read hundreds of books on my palms, uh, various kinds, grayscale screens, the color screens, and, and so on. Um, so the, the ebook market was alive and well on those devices. And it wasn't it, the thing that changed with Kindle was the technology got cheap enough that building a dedicated uh, ebook reader became commercially viable. And it also helped that Amazon was big enough that they could subsidize the cost. So you were never paying the actual cost anyway. They sell those things at a loss. Handhelds in general, Palm stagnated as a company for a lot of reasons, some technological, some just business stupidity, uh, which again, that's a whole other topic I won't get into here, but I got to watch that up close and personal. They also, during that time, slowly got taken over by uh, Pocket PC, which was the Windows, later called Windows Mobile. They changed names about four times, um, which had a number of advantages over Palm in terms of its hardware, but its software was honestly not as good. It was not as well suited, but Palm was not advancing, and so Windows devices kind of took over in the mobile space. And then Steve Jobs came back to Apple and decided to build a uh, personal media device. The iPhone 1 was originally supposed to be a video player. It was an advanced version of the iPod, 
And in the development of it, um, they realized it'd be useful if we could put a wireless radio in this thing, not just uh, you know, for not just populated locally, but also have a Wi-Fi connection and a cell phone connection that makes it that'd be a nice add-on feature for the media player. And oh, by the way, as long as we've got that connection, we might as well put phone capability in it. The cell phone side of it was always a an afterthought, but that meant they could then brand it as a phone. That I was not directly involved in that, but that's my understanding of that development. And then the Steve Jobs reality distortion field took over and suddenly Apple decided that smartphones were ready, even though they're not phones, they're handheld computers that happen to have voice capability. And you know, it had the blessing of the Steve and therefore now it is uh, a mature technology and it took off. So a lot of that history is not the technology, it is simply the personalities and the marketing and uh, that side of the industry, which is always way more important than people give it credit for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks, thanks for explaining that. There was a lot in there that I actually wasn't aware of. Um, I've I've always had a kind of like really simple pub table theory about it, which is that people have um, a kind of superstition about computers. So you, you mentioned a P, the Palm was a PDA that was a personal digital assistant, mm-hmm. and so in people's minds, when something's marketed that way, it's like, oh, it's a computer. Oh, damn it! I'm going to have to figure it out. You know, that's really complicated. There's a great tech writer for the BBC who said that he once told his mother that her remote control was a computer and she stopped using it. Um, (laughs) And so when um, iPods came out, if anyone remembers those, it was a music player, not a computer. And when, yeah. So when the, when the, when the uh, Kindle came out, it was an ebook reader, not a computer, even though it was a computer, it even had a keyboard and an internet connection and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. Uh, But, and then when the, when the iPhone came out, we were buying a phone. Um, just a phone with more capability was the way, the way people understood it. You bought it in the phone store, um, you know, things like that. Uh, and, uh, and I think that anyway, that's always been my pub table theory, which sort of touching on the more complex story that you told for why, why there was this explosion around the time the iPhone was launched. That's no doubt a factor as well. Uh, branding matters so much. Um, I mean, no one buys cars anymore. They buy computers with wheels, but if you marketed them as a computer with wheels, no one would buy them. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, so I'm looking forward to talking to you about your uh, role at platform.sh um, and about actually conferences as well, because I know you've not only spoken at many, but you've also done some conference organizing in the past, and there's mm-hmm. something interesting about our current moment to touch on there. But before we do that, I want to do a total uh, digression into blacksmithing. <laughs> um, just to get you know a little bit better, we'll just take a few minutes to talk about that. So, uh, how did you get into blacksmithing? Oh dear! A couple of years ago, I fell down the YouTube rabbit hole for medieval arms and armor, uh, which has a a couple of really good channels in it. And <clears throat> after you know a while, it has been summer three years ago now. Uh, so summer twenty seventeen, uh, a, f- a friend of mine who's now my girlfriend, uh, said, you know, Larry, there's this dabble nearby for a place that does bladesmithing. Um, so, you know, go into a one, one shot class just to try stuff out. I'm like, eh, I don't know. It's like, Gary, go try. Oh, fine. Tried it. Okay. It might be interesting. They've got classes and okay. They're actually not that expensive for what you're getting. So I'll, all right, I'll try it. And yeah, 
on coming up on three years later, uh, <laughs> I've made a bunch of knives and I have a uh, growing workshop in a spare bedroom at, at my house. Um, and that has branched out because if you're making knives, then you're making not just the steel for it, you're also making the handle and a scabbard. So there's woodworking and there's uh, leatherworking involved. So I'm currently working on uh, building up my woodworking gear and some leatherworking gear. And yeah, uh, I'm, I'm turning into a full medievalist here. <laughs> it's the only non-digital thing I do. And it's nice to exercise a completely different part of my brain and, you know, spend some time banging on a hot piece of metal to, you know, get it into shape with no technology anywhere. It's me, a hammer and a pencil um, and an anvil and you know, stuff like that, or, you know, carving a piece of wood against a uh, belt sander or with a file or hammering in leather to get it in, in, into you know, the scabbard shape or something like that. Um, it's just a, a completely different headspace than what I'm used to. And I think it's really healthy to have, you know, for anyone in technology, to have some completely non-technology, non-digital thing that they do as a hobby. Uh, whatever it is, for me, it's bladesmithing. For other people, it could be uh, knitting, jewelry making, woodworking, uh, sports, music, you know, just something to exercise a different part of your brain is, I think, very healthy. Uh, I also more recently have uh, started taking classes in uh, um, fencing. So I was taking a class on European longsword, uh, which I finished shortly before uh, the coronavirus lockdown started. So I haven't been able to continue with that. But uh, yeah, it's, again, it's something physical, something different than everything else I do. And I like, I like that. It's a, a way to create in a different area. Thanks very much for sharing all that and for being willing to go down a little bit of a digression. I just, I, I've, I've always been into, not into making, but into just into knives. And so when I was researching for this interview and I came across your YouTube channel and I was like, oh, wow, I get to watch knife videos for my job now. Uh, just as briefly, briefly enough, but uh, boy, boy, was that was that fun. And just, just I want to. I started actually collecting them too. So when when I've tra oh been traveling for conferences the last couple, I'm like, all right, is I'm in Venice? Is there a Venetian style of knife? I'll go buy one, uh, and stuff like that. So yeah, it's a <laughs> it's a hobby that can take over. I smuggled a butterfly knife in an Indian vase <laughs> home from a European trip once uh, <laughs> uh, when I was 19 years old or 20 years old, uh, they're legal in Canada. And I thought, you know, maybe if I hide it in this vase, I got in India, but I did buy the knife in Italy. Anyway, sorry, I could talk about this for a long time, but, but yeah, knives, knives are a thing you can really get into. I imagine blacksmithing is something you can really get mm -hmm. into, but yes, that, that advice about have if you're, if you're like mostly a desk bound digital person, I think almost all of us do actually just naturally find that we we have something else in our lives that we do. For me, it's for me, it's martial arts and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and uh, yeah, it's it's really great to have other things to do. Um, particularly particularly now, if especially if you're lucky enough to be able to do them at home. Um, and so, getting back more onto the, the sort of main track of the conversation, so uh, the novel coronavirus and COVID nineteen are things that have affected all of us. Um, I'm going to ask you specifically about conferences in just a moment, but um, one of the privileges of this podcast is we get to talk to authors from all around the world and find out what's going on where they live. 
Uh, how have things gone in uh, Chicago? Uh, Chicago's still locked down. Um, we're, the state is working on figuring out how we can open on uh, open pieces. Kind of the, the irony for me is I work from home anyway. And despite the conferences, despite the pre presentations, I'm an introvert. So my life hasn't changed dramatically. Um, you know, I, I don't go to dinner with my parents uh, regularly anymore. Um, and, you know, I can't go to the, for to the forge to do the, the hot work. But my routine day is still, you know, get up, commute down the hall to, the, to the, my home office, sit at my computer, do my job, get up to go downstairs to make lunch, and, and so on. Um, so, you know, in many ways, uh, I've been one of the people least hit right now, which is in some ways nice. In some ways, there's uh, survivor's guilt. Um, so I'm trying to, you know, stay home, save lives, order from uh, restaurants where I can, tip extremely well, that kind of stuff. Um, but a lot of it is, you know, I do have friends who have been laid off or furloughed. And, you know, a lot of it just comes down to, we can get through this if we all just get with the program and socially distance and wear masks and all that kind of stuff. A lot can reopen. And it's just a matter of convincing people of that. So, and as we're recording this on a, a video, even though uh, I guess listeners can't hear this. So you can see, I, I'm really overdue for a haircut, but uh, yeah, yeah, some of things could be worse. Me too. Um, uh, one thing just it's anecdotally, by the way, we timestamp these, I, I say this, this ominously, this interview was recorded on blah, blah date at the beginning of all these interviews now, because they do take sometimes up to a month to come out and things are changing so rapidly. One thing just anecdotally that I've been noticing is actual permanent closures of local businesses. So when I go for my occasional socially distanced walk, um, I do I do see that happening. Have you have you been seeing that happen in your neighborhood? I haven't been out and about much, um, so not much. Uh, although I'm sure we are going to lose some. Uh, I believe there are a couple of restaurants that have closed down. Um, there's one I believe that's taking the opportunity to do a lot of renovating, which makes sense. Um, but yeah, we're not not all of the businesses are going to get through this. But and again, that comes down to a lot of them could open if we do it right. It's a matter of doing it right and making sure we still support those that can't do it right just because of the nature of their business. Um, so, and it, I could easily get off on a digression there about systemic failures in this country to deal with the coronavirus, but uh, that's off topic. Uh, well, we could make that on topic if you wanted to. <laughs> um but 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 we don't have to i uh, actually in fact you know that would actually that would make a great another podcast i suppose but we should probably yeah, try and try and stick on track it's just it's always so tempting in these conversations to to do that um but uh if anyway i i've been involved in politics as well for a long time um worked on a number of campaigns uh right now i'm working with fair vote illinois which is uh pushing for ranked choice voting in illinois and now we're also looking at, can we get the state to commit to uh, vote by mail for the fall? Uh, we are already a uh, no-fault absentee state, which is good, but we need to go further and, like every state, commit to universal vote by mail as soon as possible. Not doing so is... 
I'm not going to go as far as criminal, but certainly immoral and irresponsible. And politicians who are blocking vote by mail have no business being in office, regardless of party. I'll stop there. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we could we could talk about that for a long time. In fact, a lot of people are talking about this. If you're interested in Larry's uh, politics, check out his Twitter uh, feed at Krell. Uh, there's lots C- of it there. E-L-L. There's lots of it there, and it's uh, there's no there's there's nothing. Uh, Nothing being hidden about, about his political commitments because he's committed to politics. Uh, and it's a, a really interesting uh, Twitter feed to follow. Um, so specifically with respect to things that are changing in people's professions, uh, perhaps sort of things we can talk about with politics aside, although I do love talking segue, about My segue there? Is, uh, yeah, <laughs> that's a segue, um, is uh, conferences. So um, not too long ago, I interviewed someone named Kyle Simpson, uh, who you can follow on Twitter at Getify uh, for this podcast. And he talked very movingly about how Although he does a lot of conference speaking, or he did a lot of conference speaking, particularly his business, in addition to self-publishing books and teaching people through things like front-end masters and stuff like that, with screen screencasts and things like that, was in-person consulting. So being paid by a company to come to a company and talk to them, and that that has collapsed um, and might not be coming back as a practice, as something that companies spend a lot of money on. Um, so conferences, I know you've done a lot of work about conferences. You've even written about things about like diversity at conferences and things like that. Um, and, uh, one thing that actually has come up on this podcast before is, you know, O'Reilly, uh, closed their in-person conference business permanently, uh, relatively quickly, actually, um, which I took as an ominous sign because they're for conferences, because they're pretty smart cookies at O'Reilly, um, what do you think is going to happen with in-person tech conferences in the near term? In the near term, I've kind of written off 2020 uh, for in-person conferences. I know of one or two that are still trying to have an in-person conference sometime this year, but I honestly don't have my hopes up. Um, the ones that are going online or switching to like user groups that are calling in remote people, I think is much more promising in the near term. Long-term, I suspect some will come back, but not all of them. Um, in many ways, there was already a surplus of conferences uh, that you know, a lot of the conference organizers I know, um, many of them were having trouble getting sponsors and uh, getting attendees in part because certain markets just are so oversaturated, especially in North America. And not all of them are going to come back. Uh, it, it is a market that was due to have some shakeout. It's kind of unfortunate that they shook out this way. Um, but yeah, it's it, in-person conferences are not going to go away entirely, but I think they are going to be reduced for a long time. Um, the irony, of course, being that I managed to get gold status on my airline this year. Oh, my. Uh, just barely. So, of course, I can't use it this year. So. Yeah, you, you can blame me. The last time uh, I managed to get gold status, something else blew up and I had to cancel a bunch of conferences. So, yeah, it, I just need to not get gold status with airlines. That's all there is to it. I hope you don't mean literally blew up. Uh, no, but uh, that it was – there's a reason why I'm not involved in Drupal anymore. Let's just leave it at that. Okay, okay, got <laughs> it. Um, uh, so um, – on that somewhat dour note, but with, you know, some hopefulness that, you know, in-person conferences and in-person consulting and things like that really do have some value. And, you know, eventually we may, you know, the world has experienced plagues and things before 
and has, you know, not necessarily come back to where it was before, but emerged sometimes in, in an even better place eventually. Um, uh, moving on to, so you say you work from home um, uh, and you work for a company called Platform.sh and you're director of developer experience there. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what the company does and what you do as a director of developer experience. So Platform SH is a uh, cloud hosting platform as a service. The basic idea for the developers in, in the room, uh, for the non-developers, you may not understand this. I'll try to make it understandable. Any website these days or web application includes its own source code. Plus it includes configuration for, I need this kind of database. I need this kind of search index. I need this ancillary service. I need this ancillary service. And managing all of those is a pain in the butt. So what we offer is your source code goes into version control. Uh, we use Git, as does most of the tech industry at this point, along with instructions declaratively for, I need a Postgres SQL database, I need Elasticsearch, I need Redis for caching, and so on, and appropriate configuration. And you push that to your Git repository that's hosted with us, and we spin up an environment built out of your application code, which could be PHP, Python, uh, Ruby, Node, Java, Lisp. We just launched Elixir support. I feel like I'm missing one in there. Go. That, that was it. Go. Uh, so we're, we're multilingual. So yeah, that application plus the database you specified, the version you specified, and, and so forth. And that's now a full running cluster using container technology for your website. If you make a branch, that's an alternate copy of your code base and push that as well, you get a separate copy of your complete site. And then we can do a copy on write clone of your production data. So you push the long and short of it, you have your website running, you want to experiment with it. You push a button two minutes later, you have a complete copy of everything code, database, uploaded files, everything in roughly constant time. And you can experiment with it, try new code, try different configuration, change your branding. And that's a completely separate environment that you can then show to your uh, customer, show to your manager, show to your stakeholders, and iterate on that. And you can have any number of those at the same time. So I can be working on changing the color scheme in this branch, in this environment, and completely separate from me, someone is working on improvements to the single sign-on functionality. We can both have our own complete environment with all of the production data without bumping into each other. And then when either of those gets approved and it's ready to go live, we just do a simple git merge back into the production environment that redeploys with the new code, all the data is still there. And so you have enormous freedom to run your site and experiment with it safely in an environment that is as identical to production as it is possible to get. So in you know, the, the DevOps world, the hosting world, you always want your testing environment and your production environment to be as close as possible. We offer as close as possible because you're running exactly the same code, exactly the same configuration. The only difference is the amount of CPU and RAM, the amount of resources that we throw to the environment because a test environment is going to have one or two users instead of one or 2,000 users. So that's what we do in a nutshell. Um, Director of Developer Experience is the fancy way of saying I'm the senior member of the developer relations team. 
developer relations is a kind of squishy field. It's part development, part marketing, part customer service, part outreach. Um, it's a kind of a glue role. Uh, some people in the developer experience uh, or you see in the uh, developer relations field um, refer to it as uh, the avocado, uh, which is good fat. It's a fat, but it's good fat, so it's good for you. Um, and the word avocado in French is avocat, which is the same as the word for advocate. So it, it lines up that way. I can't remember the name of the woman offhand who coined that phrase. I wish I could because it's a great phrase. Um, but if I remember, I'll give it to you for show notes. It also means lawyer in French. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I try not to be that. That's my brother. My brother's a lawyer. Um, so, so does this mean it, this it's mean, a very for, eclectic role? Yeah. Does this um, mean that, for example, if if uh, if a developer is having some kind of like, I mean, is it is it, is it as basic as like, or I shouldn't say basic, but like, if a developer is having a problem with their like project manager, they come to you, or if they have a proposal for how to change a process or something like that, you're the conduit to people who make decisions. Mm, not as such. It's it, it varies a lot depending on the company. At Platform, it's a mixture of blogging, conferences. Uh, we're responsible for the documentation for the product. So, um, you know, anytime we roll out a new feature, we're the ones writing the documentation for it. Some user support, like if a user comes into our support channel, our discussion channel, is asking, hey, how do I do X, Y, Z? And we're like, oh, that's this thing over here. Here's the link to the docs. Or, hmm, I don't know. Let's figure it out and then put it in the docs or things like that. Uh, we've recently started our own uh, webinar series uh, called Deploy Friday, which is kind of our slogan. We, you should have enough confidence in your process, your deployment process, that you can deploy on Friday. And that's what we aim to offer. Um, most of the time, I'm not doing any uh, engineering on the product itself, but we are responsible for maintaining uh, templates. So we have a, a number of open source projects that we host templates for. So you can just push a button and get WordPress running or get uh, the Symfony framework running or Ruby on Rails or um, Express or Nextcloud or various other applications. We're responsible for maintaining those uh, as well as some user support libraries. So my background is primarily PHP, but at Platform, I'm writing code in PHP, in Python, in uh, JavaScript, in Go. I haven't done Java yet, but I, there is someone on my team who does a lot of Java. Uh, he's big in the, the Java space. Um, so it's a, a very eclectic type of role uh, where you have to really be leveraging both solid technical skills and solid people skills. And the people skills are often the harder one. Uh, despite the fact that you usually get called soft skills, that's the people skills are the hard ones and the the more important ones. Yeah, you 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 uh, you uh, signaled that you were maybe interested in talking a little bit about that at the beginning of the interview uh, about the distinction between soft skills and hard skills and how you how you actually view that. Uh, it reminds me of there's a concept in uh, from philosophy where there, there's one philosopher named Hegel who sort of inverts the significance of abstract versus concrete. Uh, where the abstract is actually the way the concept we have of what's concrete is actually what's abstract. And anyway, it's just an interesting way of inverting it so that like soft skills are actually like the harder, the harder things I think is, is kind of what you're saying. I think the naming comes from 
programming is a lot easier to quantify. You know, the tests pass or or they don't. Um, you know, the code is faster than this threshold or it's not. So it's hard and concrete in that sense. Whereas people skills or management skills or communication skills or writing skills are a lot harder to quantify. It's a lot squishier. So they get called softs because you can't throw them in a spreadsheet as easily, which really does them a disservice because it doesn't matter how fast your code is if it's not doing the right thing. And if you want to figure out what the right thing is, you have to talk to humans. And if you want to talk to humans, you have to be able to communicate effectively with humans. And communicating effectively with humans, as we've all figured out by now, can be extremely hard, even if everyone is being honest and making a, a decent attempt at communicating, which is not always the case. Um, so, you know, I often, I like that, you know, conference talks that are on hard topics, but I think the, the human interaction of conference talks the human interaction of connecting with people, the human interaction of learning how to communicate with some new person uh, about something, of getting practice organizing things and managing things is more valuable in many ways because you can learn programming on your own from a book or a website and a text editor, and eventually you'll figure it out. You can't learn how to ask intelligent questions without other people. You can't learn how to, you know, read between the lines and figure out, okay, they say they want X, but they really want Y. They just don't understand the difference between X and Y, which is like every consultant's life all the time. Um, you know, you, you're not going to get that skill without doing it and interacting with people. And, you know, almost no program of consequence anymore is written by a single person. They may be started by a single person, but the, the big ones always have multiple people involved. And if you're a kind of a jerk and people don't want to, don't want to work with you, then it's going to hurt the project. It's going to hurt your career. It's going to hurt uh, the people around you. There are certainly companies that succeed with jerks on their payroll, but that's very much in spite of rather than because of. Um, yeah, there, there is a threshold. Yeah, there is a balance point of how much discomfort is this is this person's contribution worth to put up with but it's very heavily weighted towards if i don't want to work with them the the team is going to suffer as a result uh, and that's true whether it's a, a company or an open source project or a conference organizing team and again learning how to interact and not be a jerk you need to practice with other humans to do that and that's hard and that takes time it's uh, this is a topic I think we could probably talk about for a really long time as oh, well. Yeah. Um, uh, one one interesting feature of the current, which I'm going I'm to ask you a specific question in just a moment, just to make a sort of hopefully funny observation. Um, one interesting feature of remote work, which many companies are now adopting for the first time, um, is that some of the I'll call them neutrally qualities that can help you advance in certain corporate environments seem to be. I'll say canceled when you're working remotely. So for example, having a, being tall, uh, having a strong chin, having a confident bearing or uh, aggressive uh, body language uh, are things that can in many environments be all, all the, the, the necessary uh, and uh, sufficient conditions for advancement in a career. And I don't say that cynically. I say that from having seen it. 
Um, and a, uh, and a lot of that is there for a reason. I mean, we yeah. don't like to admit it, but we are barely removed from the jungle, metaphorically speaking. And we don't like to talk about or admit the degree to which humans have a lot of ingrained built-in assumptions about what makes a good leader, what makes a good mate, what makes a good uh, friend, what makes a good person to hang around with, that were reasonable filters 10,000, 20,000 years ago. And, you know, the, the person who is big and strong and tough and, you know, can break somebody else is someone you want on your side, even if they're kind of a jerk to be around, when other humans are separated into people who help me get lunch and people who will steal my lunch. You want the big, strong guy to be on your side so he'll help you get lunch rather than steal your lunch. That's not quite the way things work anymore. It's a lot more complicated. The skills that lead to actual success are different when success is defined by you know, stable revenue and happy customers rather than ability to kill the tiger before it kills you. But our brains are still sitting there looking for the person who can kill the tiger, which is not always a good thing, but we can't pretend that that's not there. Our, our brains have a lot more hardwiring than we want to admit. And yeah, taking away some of those contextual cues like, oh, I, I'm forced to listen to someone's words now rather than their body language. And therefore, the body language advantage goes away. Now what do I do? And it's, it's interesting. Yeah, yeah, I should, I should quote. Thank you for sharing. I should qualify this by saying neither Larry nor I are against big guys. Uh, <laughs> nothing against Some of my best friends guy. are big guys. But yeah. I like to think I'm a pretty big, tough guy. Uh, and, uh, but but what, we're, what we're speaking to is there are some kind of... Um, I mean, in economics, they talk about externalities or something like that. Maybe that's I just using that metaphorically, by the way. But like there are there are things that can, from a certain perspective, appear to be an architecture. There's the term spandrel, I guess. Um, I'm remembering Stephen Jay Gould writing about this years ago. But like there are things there are things that can appear in, in an evolutionary process that from a certain perspective do not appear to be kind of necessary for the system itself to uh perpetuate itself and to succeed and it can be frustrating to see these things uh in a corporate environment advance someone's career and put them in a position of authority when from that perspective that i'm describing it looks like they don't deserve it and being a big being a big tough guy is in no way disqualifying you <laughs> from actually having all the other really awesome qualities that are required to be really good at a job. So I've now, now I've gone to, on at length defending big guys. Uh, but um, <laughs> but I think uh, the, the idea is that there's, there's a lot of things we look for as proxies. Like we look for this attribute in something because we associate that attribute with this other attribute we want to have. We've learned or I, either we've learned or we have an innate biological drive to assume that A implies B. And in some contexts, A does kind of imply B. You know, in, in a hunter-gatherer environment, uh, physical strength can imply leadership, or it, it can be a good proxy for. In a modern world, it's a very terrible proxy. You know, it, it, there's no correlation anymore, but our brains are still wired to assume that correlation. That doesn't mean our brains are wrong. It also mean, doesn't mean we should ignore 
or pretend that the correlation isn't built into our brains. We just need to be aware of you know, all these logical fallacies that we have that if humans are prone to are there for a reason. That reason is just kind of vestigial and now we have to deal with that. Now what? Yeah. That's, uh, again, a whole other podcast. We can yeah, down no, we can check that. So yeah, before we, before we got down this rabbit hole, I promised a specific question. So um, <laughs> uh, we recently hired some co-op students for the summer, a co-op program for those who don't know is a program in university where you're doing a full university degree, but you're, uh, you're required to take terms uh, off from university to work at companies. Um, and one or two of the, the people we've hired, uh, this is their first job ever, um, and they're working remotely. Um, and so the question I have is, so a lot of us who have, have been working, I've been working remotely for a long time, you've been working remotely for a long time, um, but most of us do at least have, have had an experience of working like in the office. Um, and I've got, I've got a little joke. I'm writing a blog post about how working in the office is how we always should have been using the term remote work to refer to that. Uh, but, but, um, are there special challenges? Is it easier to transition to working remotely when you've already learned the skills and things that come from working in an office environment? Or do you think it actually might be better to just start in a remote environment? Oh, that's tricky. Mm. See, I, I'm one of those weird people who does not argue that remote work is inherently better. I know it's trendy in the tech world to say, oh, remote work is superior, and if you aren't working remotely, then your boss is a moron. I don't believe that. Working remotely has a lot of advantages. Working with other people in person has a lot of advantages. I actually have a blog post I did a year, year and a half ago called uh, In Defense of the Office, talking about here's all the challenges that you have working remotely that just don't exist when you're working in person with someone. Um, most of the things people complain about, about an office are complaints about open office designs, open plan designs, not about having a central place to go to work and open plan offices. Those are terrible. No question. End of story. But that doesn't mean that an office is bad. I don't think either model is, superior they have different sets of trade-offs and they have different some people just naturally work better in one than in the other i do think we need to have more people working remotely than we do now for environmental reasons because it, it does reduce overall net carbon output and uh, once we all survive coronavirus the number one absolute most important thing for humanity to tackle is climate change period. And that's going to be another great upheaval. We should get used to these because they're going to happen or we're going to die. Another tangent. Um, but I don't know, for someone just starting out now and working remote, I'd say that's a way of working. It is not the only way of working, but it is not a bad way of working. So if that's what you're doing, cool. Learn the ins and outs of that model and get good at it. And once the opportunity to work in person comes back, maybe you'll like you'll decide you want to do that instead. Maybe you'll be perfectly happy just working remotely. Um, I'm not going to judge you for either one. Both have advantages for okay, both great. employee and for manager. Yeah, thanks, thanks, thanks for that answer. It's uh, it's interesting and just how how tricky uh, and complex these these things are um, uh, to face. And you know, and as you say, there are you know other challenges 
not only ahead, but just here now and just kind of behind in the queue of priority, as it were. Um, so moving on uh, to the next part of the interview where we talk about your book. Um, you've written, finally going to talk about the book. <laughs> you were finally going to talk about the book. So you've, you've written a book called uh, Thinking Functionally in PHP, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what the inspiration was for you to write the book and who the intended audience is. So I've been writing PHP for 21 years now, uh, in some form or another. And I've been interested in functional programming as a concept for uh, nine, 10 years, something like that. Um, I've not done any serious work in a strictly functional language, but the more I learned about functional programming, the more I decided that a lot of these concepts were really good and do lead to better code than you know, conventional approaches of procedural and object-oriented. And what most people are doing, which is kind of a procedural, version, procedural code dumped into an object syntax because they don't actually understand OO, uh, which is most code out there today. And so I had a talk I used to give uh, on functional programming in PHP uh, a couple of years back at the conference. It was kind of popular at the time. Um, there have been other books written on functional programming in various languages you wouldn't expect to be functional languages, uh, including PHP. I honestly didn't like any of them. Then last year, uh, PHP 7.4 was coming out. PHP, for those not familiar with it, is a programming language. It's the language that I work in primarily, uh, or historically. It is also far and away the most popular language for doing server-side web development uh, by order of magnitude. No nothing else comes close to it in terms of sheer number of sites. And version 7.4 is coming out uh, last year. It's an open source language. It's developed by a, a community, an open source community. And one of its new features is short lambdas. Short lambdas, I'm going to lose the non-programmers now, I apologize, are a shorthand way to write anonymous functions. So if you have a function, um, you can have a, a named function like you're, you're used to. An anonymous function, also called a lambda, also called a, a closure. There's some subtlety in the names, but people use them interchangeably most of the time. Um, let's you define a, a function in line, kind of on the fly, as part of the program. And yeah, it, the, as the... As the joke goes, uh, a, a closure is just a, a poor man's object. An object is just a poor man's closure. They are effectively the same problem space, but done you know, different approaches. PHP has had support for anonymous functions for years, but the syntax for it was kind of clunky. And it meant that a lot of the things you would want to do if you were in a functional mindset, if you're thinking about your problem in a functional way rather than an object-oriented way or procedural way, were really hard. Uh, it's just the, the amount of typing you had to do to do it was just annoying. The code ended up being hard to read, so why bother? Short lambdas, it's just a simple feature. It lets you define anonymous function uh, with a much more compact syntax for just for cases where it's just a single-line function which seems like it's not that much of a big deal, but it means you can now create anonymous functions super easily and think of them not as, oh, I'm defining a function, as much as 
I'm encapsulating an expression that's going to take arguments. And that ability to shift your mindset opens up the, the potential now to do functional style things in PHP in a way that's a lot easier and more approachable and more legible than it ever was before. And I'd done one book in the past, uh, wrote a book on Drupal 7 development uh, for Pact Publishing years ago, uh, along with a number of colleagues at my former job. And that was not a pleasant experience. So I said, all right, I'm going to take another stab at this. And so started working on, I guess, somewhere around October-ish of last year, uh, a book on functional programming PHP 7.4 specifically. And along the way, realized I don't actually know a lot of this material. You know, there's the, the, the infamous monad, for example, uh, that everyone talks about in functional programming and no one understands because by understanding monads, you lose the ability to explain what a monad is um, and then things like that, which it's a, a fancy mathematical name for a design pattern, basically. Um, it's like, okay, I don't actually understand this. Time for me to learn. So I spent several weeks not writing, but researching, by which I mean teaching myself the material so that I could then teach it myself, which is not the first time I've done that uh, to learn something. That's actually a very good way to, to learn, at least for me, is approach something as, okay, how do I teach it? Because you don't actually understand something unless you can teach it. So I hope I've, I've been successful, successful in this book in teaching uh, some of the academic concepts, because that means I actually understand it myself. Um, and so I, I finished up the manuscripts uh, January, February this year. Um, and I, I knew I wanted to self-publish. LeanPub was the, the obvious choice for that. That's where most of the self-published tech books are that I know of. And the royalty rate is really good. So I meant I was on my own. So I hired uh, an editor who I knew personally through the PHP community. Uh, she's the editor for, I think, half the PHP books out there. Um, and hired uh, a friend's wife to do the cover art because she's also well-known at the PHP community. She's done a lot of other work there. So I uh, just tapping into those community resources that I knew through being a part of the community for so long. Um, and in mid-May, then out comes the book and huzzah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's really interesting. Um, uh, a number of, of LeanPub authors are people who, set themselves the challenge of learning something new um, and then found themselves writing in order to understand what they were learning. Um, I, I hope I'm getting this right, the guest right, but I had Chris Matman on from uh, NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory a while ago, who was writing the second version of a, of a Manning book on machine learning. Um, and what he'd done was he found that like he, when he set himself these challenges for truly demonstrating to himself that he understood each chapter that he'd read in this book. He was actually writing new chapters of, of a book essentially. Um, and, and you make the very great point that, you know, that um, having to write things down and explain them even, even to yourself uh, uh, is actually a really good way of uh, learning the things. Um, uh, it's the same idea as active, active listening, but in writing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And yeah, I, 
uh, as I mentioned before, Platform SH is all based on container technology. And when I started the company, I didn't actually know what that meant. I didn't understand what containers were. Mm-hmm. So I didn't. I wrote an article on containers, and I've given a presentation on containers. Uh, that I had to learn what containers were in order to give this presentation, and now I understand what it is. And I, I've. It's a very popular talk now because it really gets into what's going on here without the hand wavy stuff. Let's get into the nitty gritty. Let's get into the details. Let's get into the level I wanted to understand, and so had to teach myself so that I could then give a presentation on it, and now I understand it. The category theory is much the same. I kept hearing about category theory and what is this thing, and I gave arrows and objects, and I don't, what are all these fancy words? But I needed to learn that in order to write this book. Okay, so I spent lots of time Googling and eventually ended up at um, Bartosz Mislewski's, I think is, that's how you pronounce his name, uh, website and book and ended up buying uh, his book. Uh, if I can find it here, let's go. Uh, yeah. Category theory for programmers by Bartosz Miluski. I couldn't get through all of it, but I managed to get through enough of it that I could understand the words. I could put it back together. I could, um, I, I could write the chapters on category theory and actually understand what I'm talking about. So in some ways, my, my attempt was to get around the curse of the monad by trying to explain monads as I was learning them. And maybe that means I was just on that threshold, you know, of, of not quite beyond the veil where I could no longer explain it because I understood them uh, to capture that <laughs> fresh knowledge. And uh, I've gotten at least some good feedback on that. So maybe that was partially successful. Yeah, that's that's great. Just just totally by coincidence, just yesterday we published our latest version of the podcast. We try to publish new episodes on Wednesdays. This one was with an author named Alfredo Deza. And when he started learning Python, a friend of his named Noah Gift, who's now a co-author of him of, of his, uh, said, what you need to do to really learn Python is apply to give a talk at a Python conference. <laughs> and he's yeah. like, you know, well, but I can't. I don't know enough. And he said, but you'll have to in order to give the talk. Uh, and and lo and behold, he got accepted and, and gave a talk, and then you know, boom, off off he went on a little a little sort of mini career as a conference speaker, and 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 then and then book author eventually. And I think part of the just as I sort of segue into the the last part of the interview where we talk about self publishing, if you've gone to the trouble of learning something, and you've you've actually set yourself the challenge of writing about it, you've got the material, uh, the basis for a book. Um, and often people second guess themselves away from things like applying to give conference talks like writing books and things like that. But if you know something and you've got a facility for explaining it, uh, there's, there are people out there who uh, need your help uh, or, or probably and, do. <laughs> you know, the thing to understand is that presenting or teaching or writing or explaining, or, you know, all of those are related, but they're, they're an advanced skill. And it's an advanced skill that not everyone has. And if you're really good at that and okay at technology, there's a place for you teaching that material so that those, so the other people can understand it. And maybe they'll end up being better at actually doing it than you are. And that's a win. That's a success. You mentioned just now that your first experience writing a book, you did it with a bunch of other people and that it was a kind of unpleasant experience. Uh, can you actually talk a little bit about that? What, what was it that made that experience unpleasant? The main issue was, it was a book about a Drupal 7 
Drupal 7, like most open source projects, was scheduled to come out when it was done, which means who knows when that's going to happen. And that really didn't jive with the schedule that the publisher wanted to have. They wanted to crank out books at a certain schedule. They wanted everything known. They've got timelines. They have printing schedules. They have you know, some things that are completely reasonable requirements and some that are, no, you're just being a, a corporate moron requirements and some that are a little of each. And it meant that as an author, working with them was really rather unpleasant. And then, you know, they also, like, we had six authors in this book, so the royalties that we were all getting were, like, 2-3% uh, of, of sales. And they were also doing things like nickel and diming us on, you know, authors get X number of free printed copies. But there's six of you, so you only get two copies each instead of 15 copies easy, copies each. And we're like, really, dude? Really? No. So... Yeah, after that, I'm like, okay, I'm never dealing with this company again. Um, and I figured I've got enough of a name that I could do enough marketing myself uh, with my target audience, which is, you know, people who already know PHP but want to get better at it, uh, which is a, a large market. And, you know, I, I could do enough of my own marketing there to make up for whatever difference in sales not having them around to market it would be. And then you know, with LeanPub, it's 80% royalty instead of 2% royalty. So if I sell 100 copies, I've still made probably more money than I would have made with 1,000 copies with that other company. I'm perfectly happy to sell 1,000, 3,000 copies through LeanPub. That'd be wonderful. So please go buy copies. But you know, it, it means from an economic and financial point of view, the point of return you know, where, I, where I've – I'm making enough uh, on it to justify the the effort and the expense of you know hiring an editor and so forth is a lot sooner, and so I don't need to sell as many copies to make it worth my while to do, and I still learned along the way enormously. So, uh, and, that and is, you know, like at the self-publishing environments, you get a lot less professional support for the non-writing parts and actually for some of the writing parts too, but that means if you're able to supplement those yourself, then the control you have, the uh, freedom you have, the um, you know the ease of you know, making back your investment, I think is a lot nicer uh, in that regard. And how did you find your editor? So I she was uh, the editor for like half the PHP books on the market. Uh, it's Cara Ferguson. Um, she's also the editor for. Uh, PHP Architect magazine, uh, which has been around forever. So it really wasn't much of a question. I was like, oh, I know Kara. I've talked to her at conferences. I've hung out with her and her husband. So, all right, I'll message her. Cool. Um, so that, that was uh, a pretty easy in, in my case. Um, and, and for those for those who've never done it before, for whom, you know, publishing a book is a, is a big black box, um, did you hand over to her a complete manuscript when you were done a first draft or did you hand her chapters piece by piece as you wrote them? In my case, I wrote the whole manuscript first uh, and I was using Markdown and get uh, LeanPub offers uh, that model, which I prefer. And then when I brought her on after I'd more or less finished the book, I copied everything over into a bunch of Google docs and shared those with her. 
and she just went to town with Google Doc editing. And, you know, a lot of it was, you know, topographic stuff because she's trained to look for that and I'm not. Some of it was wording things in a cleaner fashion. Um, some of it was just validating that the structure I had made sense. And fortunately it did, but that is one of the questions I had for is, is the flow good? Is the uh, order that I'm addressing the chapters in good? Um, you know, she was definitely not providing the level of take it apart and rebuild it that a you know, professional editor for a novel would be providing, but that wasn't what I was looking for. I was looking for, is my overall structure for a tech book good? And, it, you know, I, I need a copy editor to take care of stuff. And she was very good, very efficient, very cost effective for that. And what was the reason to use Google Docs? Um, we've had we've had a number of, we, we even had a Google Docs writing mode in the past. Um, and we've had a number of LeanPub authors talk about, you know, using Google Docs. We even recently actually had someone ask for Microsoft Word, like DocX output, um, so they could share their book with an editor. And I'm, I'm just asking in this case in particular, you know, it sounds like the editor had a preference for Google Docs. Was that so they could put comments on things and things like that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Google Docs is really, really good for collaborative editing. Um, it's terrible for writing markdown, especially when I have got, yeah, I'm writing a lot of source code and there's, about a third of the length of the book is PHP code. And writing that in Google Docs is a god-awful experience. You don't want to do that. But putting all the texts into Google Docs so that we can use Google's commenting feature and talk back and forth and make suggestions. I, I didn't have her, I didn't open it up to editing. I gave her uh, suggestion access. And so I could see every change she wanted to suggest and I could accept or reject everything. And I accepted like 98% of it, but uh, it, it is a really nice workflow, and I, I use it at work as well when I'm writing blog posts. I do the same thing. So just so, just so people get a sense of like the actually how this works, would you like have like your plain text document of your book content open on the like say the right of your screen and have Google Docs open on the left, and then when you approved a comment in the Google Doc, would you then make the change in the Google Doc, or would you make the change in your plain text file? So in my case, uh, I had the canonical version in in Git, in Markdown. I copied everything over into Google Docs, you know, one doc per chapter. She went through the whole thing uh, over the course of several days, and I was reviewing and following up and commenting there. Everything was in Google Docs. And after she was all done, I just did select all, paste, select all, paste, select all, paste, okay. to move it back into uh, my Git copy. So I have a Git commit in my history that is... <laughs> Porting back changes from editor, which has you know a, a bajillion edits throughout the entire document. Okay, so you can you can basically like so you can copy and paste from a plain text file into Google Docs, even if there's code in there, and then you can yeah. make changes in the Google Docs and then just copy and paste it back into a plain exactly. text file, and that'll work. Okay, great. That's what I wanted. There's a, a few yeah. fiddly bits in it, but that it was generally the approach, and it worked reasonably well. Yeah, there's always some curating with these with these kinds of processes. So I'm glad to, I'm glad to hear that worked. And it's and by the way, it is really nice to hear about these things in detail um, uh, because it's it can save people so much time uh, and uh, heartache uh, and stress to know to know not only what the solutions are, but that everybody faces the same problems and is kind of fiddling around all the time trying to optimize processes. Yeah, it's it's probably what I would do next time as well, um, and I'm hoping that there's a next time. I'm uh, not quite sure what yet, but that's the plan. 
Well, uh, so, so are we. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, so the, la- the last question um, I always like to ask on this podcast when the guest is a Lean Pub author is if there was one feature we could build for you uh, or one problem we could fix for you, can you think of anything you would ask us to do? I'm going to give you one of each. Okay. So one problem to fix. Some, there's a bug in your rendering system. I cannot do us a, a shruggy emoji. Oh, that's you. Okay. That's right. me. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And that's annoying because I had one uh, part of the book where I was describing returning null from a function as the program equivalent of shrug emoji. And so I used a shrug emoji like eight times in two paragraphs, which absolutely perfectly captured the message I was trying to say there, but it would not render correctly in any output. So I ended up changing it to just saying shrug emoji, which kind of gets the point across, but isn't as cute. Um, so if there's a, a, anything to fix, it'd be that. Um, in terms of features to add, I know there are ways to do print on demand uh, with third-party companies, but it'd be lovely to see that integrated and have a sense for like when I'm setting a price for the book, all right, what's the price going to end up being if I decide to do a, a paper version? Right now I'm not because you know, I'm waiting for some feedback. If I'm getting feedback from readers, I might want to tweak a few things, which is wonderful that I can do that. Um, but you know, my parents are university professors, retired now, but university professors, they want a signed copy and I, I can't give them a signed copy yet. So better integration in setting up uh, a print-on-demand option would be really nice. Okay, thanks. Thanks very much for both of those. Um, with respect to the shrug emoji, yeah, and when, or emoticon, I should say, uh, when when you're doing things that use Markdown, or in our case, our, our flavor of it, Markua characters, you have to, you often have to escape the character so that it doesn't, and there's a, this escape is a technical term for non-programmers listening in, but it basically means that like, don't interpret what follows this as code for formatting the book, just output the thing that the person is typing. But if, if the escape character is the thing you're trying to escape, like happens with the, the shrug emoticon, then, then you can run into trouble. And I actually spent some time myself trying out the various things and, and couldn't find a solution. So we know about this. It's probably not the kind of thing we're going to have significant developer time for anytime soon. But, but the higher level problem, though, is is actually something that's that's important to us to have solutions for. So there's two different pieces. There's escaping the characters that end up being interpreted as control codes. Also, the smiley face in the middle in PDF just renders as a square. So that's just a straight up character encoding question yes that's no that's that's correct and when we, we do know we do have so there are some character encoding things that we're aware of and this is this is on our list of, of things um and can i just say thank you for saying emoticon rather than emoji I, I thank you for correcting me because yes i i don't really like all the fancy graphical emoji but i i do like and have been a fan of emoti- uh, the emoticons for years so yeah me too um, just for those listening again uh, you know an, emo- an emoji is when you see the yellow smiling face in a, in a circle an emoticon is when someone types a colon and then like a a, a close parenthesis a close parenthesis yeah to make a smiley face um that's, that's two the, different art forms that yeah, are yeah. kind of overlap yeah those are the two different things and then some people like both some people like neither and some people have a preference for one over the other and so we have a you know we 
those of us who have a preference, particularly for emoticons, like to make sure we make the distinction between an emoji and emoticon. And when it comes to producing book output, actually, they're very different concepts and they're very important to, to have distinct in your mind. With respect to uh, print books, so we do have a print-ready output a print ready PDF output option. So you can, you can do various settings and you can click a button and you can get a PDF that you know, you'll have to tweak it and iterate a little bit. Uh, if you're using a third party print service, we have had the request for integration before, you know, the, the, the ideal endpoint of that process would be a, you click a button and, you know, make a print copy of my book or send, send me a test print copy of my book and then you approve it, and then it's just available on some third-party service for print-on-demand, and all you have to do is click a button in LeanPub. We are in the digital goods business, not in the <laughs> physical goods business. These are very different kinds of businesses to be in. Uh, uh, you know, just, just for example, like just the concept of refunds and returns in itself mm-hmm. is just like in LeanPub, we have the magical like refund my purchase button, and you get a refund right away, and it all works. When you're dealing with physical books, that whole process is just completely different yeah. and full of pitfalls and risks and stuff like that. Um, and so, we'll, I mean, I, I can pretty, never is a long time, but I'm pretty sure LeanPub will never be in the print book production business, even, even via some kind of agreement with a third party. But we love print books. Print books are very important, and that's why we have our print-ready PDF output option. And we also have an InDesign output option as well. So for people who've got a complete manuscript and they want to actually give it to a, like a, I would say like a professional book, proper book designer, we actually give you the, the starting, a pretty robust starting point for that process. So we're aware of it as an issue. We know it's something that authors want. Having the magic button is probably not something that we're ever going to have, but, yeah, but we understand the desire for it completely. Yeah, it's even just better, you know, better integration. So like, having a sense of, you know, if I want to add that, then here's what that price model would, would look like at these partners, you know, a way to toss a PDF over to, you know, some approved partner uh, more easily, you know, things like that would be uh, very yeah. much appreciated. Yeah, we'd, we'd, we'd love to have a guide. Um, part of the issue with having guides with respect, as you would know, with respect to sort of third parties is the third parties can change their terms anytime they want. And then you get yourself in the kind of little bit of a potential trap where someone's like, hey, you told me it was going to cost this and now it costs that. What's wrong with you? And it's like, well, right. they changed their price. We didn't. And, and so that w- are generally speaking, what we, we prefer to have people who are not a part of LeanPub <laughs> write about things like that, not because we're lazy, but just because people, right. if, if, we're, if it's the business that someone's dealing with and it's money in their profession and their career, and stuff like that that they're concerned about people actually do more often than you might think start to conflate different services so you know we'll get we'll get amazon deniability <laughs> well yeah yeah but but we also want people to understand that like it's actually like it sounds silly but like people do get confused and so we'll we'll get amazon support emails really for example because someone has downloaded the moby version and they're having trouble getting it into their their kindle account or something like that even though the moby is perfectly fine but like people don't people just don't always see the distinction between the different services that they're using. And so we do try to try, I mean, we, we do try to keep the lines distinct insofar as we can. Um, well, anyway, Larry, uh, thank you very much for taking the time out of your day to do this.
Yeah, it's um, been fun. Thank you. Really appreciated it. Uh, and thank you for being a lean pub author. The book for anyone listening is Thinking Functionally in PHP. It's about functional programming, using PHP as a sort of foundation for learning it. But if you're interested in learning about functional programming, both from the sort of basic introductory side but all the way up to the computer science stuff, as you say in your book description, and then learning about the mysterious monad, uh, this, is, this is the book for you that's Thinking Functionally in PHP. So thank you very much, Larry, for being a lean pub author and for being on the Front Matter podcast. Be well. Thanks. And thanks, as always, to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter Podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to try being a LeanPub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.